For the last several weeks, activists across the North American West Coast have been forming picket lines at port cities. Hundreds of protesters came to the port of Oakland, blocking the unloading of an Israeli cargo ship. Their voices echoed, making it clear they wanted to block the boat. These protesters are part of a movement targeting Israel's largest shipping company, Zim. They're trying to pressure Israel into ending its military occupation and complying with international law. And they're doing so from a distance by using a site of global connection, ports. The ports are a site of international commerce. The ports are a site of global capitalism. The ports are also a site of labor, um, labor power. So how did activists end up targeting an Israeli shipping line? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. For about seven years, ships operated by the Israel-based Zim Integrated Shipping Services haven't docked at the Port of Oakland in the U.S. state of California. But when a Zim ship attempted to do that earlier this month, Activists in California's Bay Area created a picket to prevent the ship from unloading. Lada Kiswani, a Palestinian-American organizer in Oakland, was one of them. My name is Lada Kiswani. I am the executive director of AROC, the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, the leader in the global Block the Boat campaign. So your organization has been one of the leaders behind a series of protests targeting an Israeli shipping company. How did the Block the Boat movement come to be? In 2014, during the war on Gaza, we were mobilizing alongside people all around the world to protest the assault on our Palestinian siblings in Gaza and the rest of Palestine. And after days of demonstrating in the thousands here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we wanted to take on a more tangible campaign that had an impact on the state of Israel. We decided to build on a picket at the Port of Oakland and ask the port workers, our local union, the International Longshore Warehouse Union Local 10, to honor that picket in solidarity with Palestine. Protesters came together multiple times in 2014 to block Zim ships from unloading their cargo. This sustained campaign turned the Zim ship away from the port of Oakland for seven years and counting. So that was really the beginning of the Block the Boat campaign. So these most recent actions over the last few months, how did those come to fruition? During the recent assault on people in Jerusalem and the bombing of Gaza, we were alerted that the Zim shipping line was attempting to come back to the port of Oakland for the first time in seven years. So we immediately put out a call to action to prepare to block the boat. Right around that time, during Israel's assault on Gaza in May, a federation of Palestinian unions issued a statement It called on U.S. labor unions to take actions, like refusing to unload cargo from Israeli ships. First and foremost, our commitment as as Block the Boat is to ensure that this is really rooted in in worker solidarity. So we spent um, days going to the union hall, talking to workers, sharing with them the statement from Palestinian workers, asking for solidarity. And that's just one part of organizing a picket like this. 
part and parcel of the work is actually doing a lot of research and tracking the Zimship. We learned from 2014 that you can't just prepare for a mobilization on the day the ship is scheduled to dock because there'll be some maneuvers that it attempts to make to avoid the demonstrations. So we had a research team that continued to track the Zim Volans ship. That was the vessel that we were targeting here in Oakland. And for about two weeks, it continued to stay at bay. It attempted to leave the port of Oakland and return. So AROC tracked the ship and set up a system to text protesters to be prepared to mobilize. And then, Lara says, they got word that the ship would attempt to dock on June 4th. So, you know, we show up a few hours before the workers are set to be there. The idea is that a community picket will be present as workers are arriving and workers will honor the picket and not cross it. So you want to make sure you arrive a couple hours before the ship is actually set to be worked. So we alerted people within hours that we needed to mobilize to the port of Oakland that morning at 6 a.m. We had shuttles from the BART train, which is in West Oakland, in order to be able to make it accessible to as many people as possible. People were at the gates where workers enter, and we had people walk in a a circle, chanting, carrying signs. People at each gate were walking for hours as workers came to the port of Oakland and stood aside, parked on the side and honored the picket and did not cross. So you are in Oakland, but the Block the Boat movement is bigger than just one city. And the latest news is actually out of Seattle, where police broke up protests. Can you talk about that? So what happened in Seattle is people were holding a community picket and the police cracked down on them and brutally attacked and assaulted many of the demonstrators, forced the picket to be shut down and then forced the ship to be worked. So essentially, the only way the Israeli Zim ship was able to work at the port of Seattle was through police intervention. Oakland and Seattle are just two of the cities taking action. Block the Boat is a global campaign, and they're using some tactics that have been seen before. Block the Boat is working within the Movement for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS, which is modeled after the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. So can you explain what the movement is, what the goal is, and, and how targeting Zim fits into that. So the Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions movement aims to isolate Israel politically, economically, and culturally. It enables the international community to have a vehicle to demonstrate solidarity with the people of Palestine, wherever they may be. Zim shipping line as a target, it's the largest Israeli shipping line, and it has a long history in the settler colonial project of the state of Israel. The Zim Shipping Company actually brought in European settlers to Palestine in 1948. It's a history Zim mentions itself. Here they are talking about it in a PR video. Zim ships brought in more than 100,000 immigrants. During Israel's War of Independence in 1948, Zim ships carried precious supplies as well as arms and ammunition to ensure the survival of the young state. So it has a long history and relationship both to the state of Israel, its settler colonial project, to global militarism, and to policing. So targeting it is both isolating apartheid Israel. So we're showing that we can disrupt international commerce with the state of Israel. We can disrupt international commerce between the state of Israel and the United States, which backs 
Israel upwards of $3.8 billion a year, and we can disrupt global capitalism. So it's a very concrete BDS target in that way. But for us, what's also important, it builds solidarity and community and demonstrates labor and worker power. The ability to actually show your economic power is part and parcel of the BDS movement. And why is shipping so central to the Israeli economy? Well, the Israeli economy, as we know, is based on being able to export its tactics, its technologies, its weaponries across the world. Palestine is used as a laboratory um, to test out weaponry and tactics and repressive strategies that are then exported across the world. How do you export things is through shipping. But also, if we want to impact Israel economically, then we need to not only take up consumer boycotts, but think about ways that we can actually structurally target some of their largest flows of, of capital. One of the largest flows of capital is the shipping industry. There's many good reasons why activists might target cargo ships, but the most obvious is that global trade is the sort of absolute center of the global economy. That's Peter Cole. He's a historian based in the U.S. state of Illinois. And he's written extensively about dock worker activism, especially when it comes to the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local 10, the union Laura mentioned. So the movement of raw materials and finished goods literally makes capitalism work. And even today, even though trucks and trains are very important, 90% of all goods that are consumed are moved at least part of their journey by ship. It's very simple. The things we want and consume are made in one place and consumed in another. Peter says dock workers have some obvious reasons why they might be on the front lines of international solidarity movements. First of all, they're international by nature, right? They literally meet people um, every day from other places. So they're actually more in tune, even before this thing we call the internet, with global events. The ships they work, the cargo they're doing, they are by definition looking outward as opposed to inward. So they know what's going on. And because of the nature of their work, dock workers are well positioned to get politically involved, Peter says. They do have more power than, say, someone who's, I don't know, makes pencil erasers, right? No offense to the pencil eraser workers out there. But if they stop work, the economy continues. But if these men and women stop work um, or are sort of pushed to do so by community supporters, then the exciting things can happen. Going back into the late 1930s in San Francisco, Dock workers started to use their power on the waterfront, collective power, because they represent all the workers, to express political opinions. One of the best-known examples of that came in 1984, when dock workers in the Bay Area wanted to protest against apartheid in South Africa. There is no longer workplace action or, or no sort of really more important workplace action in the U.S. against apartheid than in November 1984 when for 11 days dock workers refused to unload cargo as many hundreds of community people basically rallied on the pier of San Francisco to give them support to try to basically put economic pressure upon the apartheid regime in South Africa. As Peter mentioned, dock workers in California's Bay Area had a history of political activism. And in 1984, at a monthly union meeting... They showed a documentary film about why apartheid was so horrible. And right after that hour-long film shown, which is unusual at this monthly meeting of dock workers, right, as planned, someone made a motion, we should boycott the, the next ship that comes in with South African cargo. And that is what they did. 
Longshoremen are still refusing to handle the cargo from South Africa. Remaining in the holds of the Dutch vessel, the steel, coal, glass, wool, and auto parts scheduled to have been unloaded here along with some cargo from Australia. It was planned so that people who were dispatched from the local were those who were already very strong supporters because what was happening over the next 10 days is that these people were being dispatched to work but not working, which means that they weren't going to get paid. And so I always say when you go to a protest, would you go to a protest if you had to take $100 out of your wallet to go to that protest? And then the answer is probably not. So what these guys were doing was actually to take a week and a half pay cut. When Nelson Mandela visited Oakland a few years later, in 1990, he specifically thanked the dock workers for their action. We salute members of the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen Union Local 10 who refused to unload a South African cargo chief in 1984. The protest by the dock workers laid the foundation for more actions in the Bay Area. Just a few months later, students at the University of California, Berkeley, the flagship campus in the state, were pushing the board of trustees to divest from any corporations that did trade in South Africa. Right, And so basically, this worker action stimulated further Bay Area and national actions. And in 1985 and uh, in 86, the, the struggle against apartheid in the U.S. and worldwide continued to grow. Activists within the U.S. pressured the government to act. Then-U.S. President Ronald Reagan received pushback from reporters for some of his comments on South Africa in 1985, implying that segregation had ended. Do you really believe that all segregation has been eliminated in South Africa, Mr. President? You said that in your radio interview. No, and I didn't intend to say that. I did know that all the people that have been coming back here have been reporting to me on how widespread was this, and I'm sorry that I carelessly gave the impression that I believed it had been totally eliminated. Reagan opposed sanctions against South Africa, though, which was a common demand from activists. In my view, we must work for peaceful evolution and reform. Our aim cannot be to punish South Africa with economic sanctions that would injure the very people we're trying to help. In 86, then, a sanctions bill was passed. Reagan vetoed it. Um, And then in an incredibly rare case, a bipartisan group overrode Reagan's veto. For those of us who think about Palestine, you can't help but think about the many different aspects, right? Divestment, sanctions, worker action. If this is familiar, which I assume it is to at least some listeners, that's because many have studied the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa for the lessons that might be learned, how to exert pressure in country, but also actually how to, when you're not strong enough in country, to sort of get international support. In the end, the South African cargo did eventually make it off the ship. But Peter says these symbolic protests are important because they open up possibilities. Once the door is open, other people walk through that door. And so we see in many instances that what one group of people do can be sort of copied by others. And again, that we're seeing sort of similar tactics 35 years later is suggestive that uh, the tactics resonate and have potential in our time, not just in the past. Back in Oakland, Lara says the Block the Boat movement is continuing to engage with other groups and unions around the world, not just North America. And there's a reason for that. I have been mentored and come from a long tradition of internationalism 
My people who mentored me were the same people who fought against apartheid South Africa, who fought against the coups in Central America, who fought alongside our indigenous siblings here in the Americas. That is the internationalist view that I hold and very much and the worldview that AROC holds and Block the Vote holds in how we approach our work and our understanding of labor and community solidarity. Beyond blocking Zim-operated ships from docking, what do you hope to see come from this movement? Block the Vote has set an example for what's possible, and we believe that it may pave the way for more labor movements to take up the task to see themselves as connected to the struggles of Palestinian people and Palestinian workers. And what will success look like? Success will look like Zim not being able to dock at any port anywhere in the world. And success would look like an end to apartheid in Palestine, an end to the military occupation, the right of return of refugees. Success would look like the liberation and dignity of all people, for people to be able to live to their fullest potential without exploitation, not only in Palestine, but everywhere. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai, Wentina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilar. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. Special thanks to the Labor Video Project. For more on this story, follow us online. We're at AJ the Take on Instagram and Twitter and the Take Pod on Facebook. We'll be back. <laughs>